0: I want to start by sharing the names of Lucy, Rina, and Maya D. British Israeli Jews who were murdered by a Palestinian gunman last week as they drove to a family teal. The rest of the family was in another car. Lucy was my age, and her daughters were Eva and Sammy's age. We, like the D's, like to sit for long hours at our Shabbat dinner table. We like to learn together and sing together and debate. Like them, we like to take family to hikes and find beauty, the fingerprint of God in the landscape, especially during the holidays. Like them, we play silly games for hours on end, and, and we have all kinds of family customs, like Shabbat questions and gratitude games. And over the last several days, I've read over and over the words of Lucy's husband, Rabbi Leo D., as he described hearing that there had been an attack on the road, and then looking at his phone and seeing that he had missed a call from his daughter right during the attack. I thought a lot about the unimaginable sorrow and the sense of powerlessness, the heartache of that missed call, his last chance to hear the voice of his beloveds before all three of them died. When I came back from Israel just before Pesach, I promised all of you that I would share a little bit about my trip to Israel. I was on a small emergency delegation with the New Israel Fund. Our beloved Steve Burns joined us. I've been eager to share with all of you about my meetings with protest leaders and journalists and members of the opposition the message of solidarity that I went to deliver with those rising up in unprecedented numbers taking to the streets to fight for Israel's future. I've been eager to share with you the feeling as we approach Israel's 75th birthday that as Barbara Balaban once said to me in a moment of great heartache, what if we who have been blessed to live through the miracle of Israel's birth might also be witnessing its demise. I did not know that I was gonna have to share these reflections with the fresh wounds of a horrific murderous attack against Israeli civilians, one that is justified under no circumstances ever. So I wanna make sure that it's clear that my words today, even or especially in the aftermath of this latest escalation of violence, are offered as my deepest expression of concern and love for my people, for our people, and I pray that the D family is able to find comfort and consolation among all of the mourners of our people and all who grieve. I also want to say that there are at least six or seven sermons that need to be given here, and so let's call this maybe the first in a series. First, a a word of Torah. Aaron's sons, as you heard earlier today from David, Nadav, and Avihu, They see how much joy and how much gladness God and the community derive from the sacrificial offerings that their father brings on the eighth day, the inauguration service. And so they come forward and they bring their own offering in Esh Zarah. And as we've heard, they are consumed by God's fire, killed before the entire community. It is a moment of utter devastation. Something truly unthinkably awful has happened. How does Aaron, their father, respond? Vayidom aharon, he is silent. The rabbis have spent millennia trying to understand that silence. What could it possibly mean? And interpretations abound, each of them with a different moral judgment or analysis for our ancestor Aaron. Sforno, writes in the 16th century that Aaron was actually consoling himself, having been told that the death of his sons represented the sanctification of God's name. In other words, his silence is a justification. This evil that has befallen my family is for the good. Rabbi Eliezer Litman lichtenstein writing in the 19th century, as Nechama Leibovitch points out, distinguishes between two verbs, Vayishtok, that were usually used, to communicate silence, which means abstaining from any outward manifestation of grief, even when you might be dying inside, holding it in, staying polite and composed, versus vaidom, the verb that's used here, which connotes a kind of inner peace, a calmness of spirit. Rabbi Lichtenstein says his heart and soul were just at peace with what had happened to his sons. He justified the divine divine verdict. This is even more damning in some ways, that Aaron's silence is a reflection of acceptance. It just doesn't even bother him anymore. A Barvanel in the 15th century, he says that Aaron's heart actually turned to stone. It became lifeless. He grew totally disengaged, maybe because it was too painful to feel at all. And Rabbi Nubachia writing in the 14th century, says that silence is one of the ways in which mourning is expressed. It just might not be your way. Either way, all of these teachers, these great readers of Torah, all of them are trying to explain how it could be that Aaron, this father, quieted the external manifestations of concern and distress and protest when something unthinkably awful had unfolded. There's a reason that Aaron's posture of silence has so disturbed us for generations. That kind of acceptance and acquiescence in the face of something so awful feels un-Jewish. It feels even a little bit heretical. Of course, there is another way. And I bring us to Walter Brueggemann, the contemporary Protestant theologian and scholar, who introduces this concept of prophetic grief. Grief that is powerful enough to overturn the world order, grief that does not accept, grief that rages against reality, and forces new beginnings, even amidst unimaginable ends. It's from Breugman that we learn that suffering made audible produces hope. The role of a prophet, according to Breugman, is to awaken the possibility of new beginnings from numbness from numbness and grief to hope, from brokenheartedness to something completely new. If that's the role of a prophet, then the role of a prophetic movement is similarly to vocalize our grief, to make our suffering audible, and to produce hope. And that, I want to tell you, is what I experienced on the streets in Israel. Suffering made audible. Grief and concern and outrage and fear all mixed together in a kind of sacred stew that literally could not be contained in indoor spaces but poured out into the streets. Remember right after the 2016 elections when Timothy Snyder wrote the book On Tyranny, which I bought 40 copies of and gave to everyone I could? A window into the playbook for fascism and autocracy The central message of this little book, coming from a professor of history who's studied 20th century fascistic movements for decades, is this. Democracy is not forever. Democracy must not be taken for granted. He writes, the mistake is to assume that rulers who came to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that's exactly what they have announced that they intend to do. Snyder writes in this very memorable passage, some of you will recall, of the hero of a David Lodge novel, who says, you don't know when you make love for the last time, that you're making love for the last time. Snyder says voting's like that too. Don't assume that what you have now will last forever. And yet again and again throughout history, we fail to heed that warning until it's just too late. But today, in Israel, there's a political awakening that's happening. From Jerusalem to Haifa, from Tel Aviv to Beersheba, from Afula to Eilat. An awakening to how very fragile it all is. A realization that what we have can be so easily lost if we don't fight with everything we've got to save it. It's this spirit that I felt in the Saturday night protests. Tens of thousands of people packed into an outdoor courtyard in Kfarsaba to chant and to sing and to jeer, Busha, 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 shame on you. Shame on all of you. And this is the spirit that I felt the next night when, as I've shared with some of you, my brother called me at 11 p.m., just as I had checked into my hotel in Tel Aviv to tell me that the prime minister had just fired the defense minister, and people were calling for protests in the street. You have to go, he said. This is history that's happening. So I left the hotel, and I started to walk. A- and, and I was amidst throngs of people pouring into the street, chanting, get off your balcony. The country is collapsing, which rhymes in Hebrew. peset ha koreset. I arrived at the heart of those protests on Kaplan Street. There were hundreds of thousands of people out at midnight, singing and dancing and drumming and declaring that they would not allow their country to be turned into a dictatorship. I saw young people and old people, Ashkenazim, Mizrahim. I saw religious and secular swept up in a spirit of transformation. It felt to me less like the country was collapsing and more like the country, was being reborn. It was a massive, spontaneous awakening, a beautiful, diverse, unified voice of protest. And all told, there were 800,000 people who took to the streets across the country at midnight that night. Then the very next day, when my delegation with the New Israel Fund began, we received news that the Prime Minister was going to make an announcement regarding the fate of the overhaul legislation midday. And people were pouring to the Knesset from all over the country. So our group rerouted, and we headed to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people again. Steve Burns and I were there among them. I want you to understand what protests of this magnitude mean in such a small country. It would be the equivalent of tens of millions of Americans rising up in a fairly unified voice, to cry out against injustice not once or twice, but week after week after week for 15 weeks so far. What is the meaning of this massive show of protest? It means that unlike Aaron, the people's hearts are breaking or maybe broken, but they will not be silent. They will not justify or accept or God forbid disengage. They will not let democracy slip away they will fight. I want to say that these protests are terribly imperfect. Even their organizers, who are devoted activists, many of whom have broken their teeth in the work of building a Jewish-Arab political partnership, they recognize the imperfection of the protest movement. There really are two camps that you'll find in the street today. The majority, are the people who want to go back to where the country was just six months ago, before these ultra-nationalist messianists came into power. And then there's a minority who insist on foundational changes, who understand that a country that is built on an unjust foundation can never truly flourish, that none of us will be free until all of us are free. Rather than splinter the movement in the street, the organizers made the tactical decision to veer toward the most unifying message, which is also the most limited one. We oppose the judicial overhaul. You cannot have a democracy in which there are no checks and balances. To dismantle the Supreme Court is to dismantle the democracy. As Professor David Meyer says, there's a name for that, and it is called fascism. This is a political emergency, they say. And when you are standing at the edge of a cliff, you do whatever you can to stop from careening off. We need the broadest possible tent to overcome this hurdle. Only then will we be able to deal with the more foundational challenges at the heart of this society. And it is precisely this reasoning that's why most Palestinian citizens of Israel are not at all engaged in this protest movement, perhaps you've noticed. It's not that they don't care about democracy. It's not just the sea of Israeli flags that they, many, have a very different association with. We heard over the course of the week the same message from many Palestinian activists over and over. There has never been democracy for us, they say. These problems aren't new, it's just the first time that Israeli Jews are noticing the problems. Going to these protests won't change our daily lives at all, they say. We'll still be suffering under this regime or the next. And we've seen the brutality that some of the law enforcement has shown even to Jewish protesters in Tel Aviv. Imagine what they would do to me, many said. Or, as the member of Knesset Ahmed Tibi says, Israel is a jewish and democratic state for jews it's democratic for arabs it's jewish while there is a small anti occupation contingent at every protest it is truly marginal and marginal i was so inspired when I was at the Knesset to see a few hundred people who were waving Israeli and Palestinian flags together along with pride flags and trans flags. I snapped a picture for my kids. This is the vision of Israel's future, I said. Jewish-Arab political partnership with equal justice for all. But only hours later, my euphoria was smashed to the ground when I saw a video circulating of someone at that same protest but in a different place carrying a Palestinian flag who was jumped by officers, the flag torn from his hands. Such things are not accepted here. This could crush the spirit, along with the realization that the political price of even pausing the judicial overhaul appears to be a private militia directed by a flame-throwing messianist and more funding to watch groups to monitor Palestinian buildings in Area C, like the building that we witnessed in Susia, a small Palestinian town situated between several growing and well-funded Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Nasser, our Palestinian host and the head of his household, who's a field researcher for B'Tselem and Hakel, Israeli human rights organizations, told us about the constant threat of violence that he and his neighbors face from their neighbors in the extremely violent, illegal Jewish settlement outposts that dot the landscape of the south Hebron Hills. Some years ago, he described, there was a terrible storm and the roofs of their small homes made of concrete blocks and plywood were damaged. When the rain let up, members of the community worked furiously to repair these roofs before the rain returned, but they were spotted by drone monitors operated by a young man named Bitzalel Smotrich. Their homes were subsequently slated for demolition on the grounds of illegal building. This is daily life under the occupation in the West Bank, as if any moral analysis would suggest that a young man should let his elderly mother and his small children sit soaked in their living room rather than try to repair the damn roof. I wish I could report that the hundreds of thousands in the street are rising up not only to fight for checks and balances in and in a healthy Supreme Court, but also to cry out against these kinds of injustices. It's true that the chants have shifted over the weeks from demokratia and bushah to "Efo ha'itim behu'ara, where were you when hu'ara burned, and ma'asitim be'alaksa, What did you do at Al-Aqsa Mosque? But still, this is just a quiet minority. And even still, I want to report to you that I am not despairing. No way. Why not? Because I remember what happened in the movement for women's suffrage in this country. Surely you remember this was a deeply flawed racist movement. Even suffrage leaders like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who had previously championed equality for black people, allowed themselves to enter into partnership with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. They called it a means to an end. They had to build the political power that they needed in order to get the vote. In the meantime, they elevated and they partnered with people such as Francis Willard, the national president of the temperance movement, who was animated by a certainty that it is not fair that a plantation Negro who can neither read nor write should be entrusted with the ballot. These were their partners. And scholars note that black and indigenous women were among the leading advocates for ratification of the 19th Amendment, which ultimately failed to explicitly protect their voting rights on the basis of race. So while monumental, the amendment only protected the voting rights of white women. This is a shameful chapter in our history But nevertheless, that movement was the beginning of an awakening of consciousness that would plant the seeds for a broader movement for justice and equality that would play out over the course of the next century or more. Or more recently, we can look at the 2017 Women's March. Five million Americans took to the streets. It was the first time that many white, middle-class Americans actually felt disenfranchised. And while the protest that day was diverse, it was decidedly not radical. It was inclusive and broad, but it inspired people to show up that day, and then at the airports, and then at the Supreme Court. Nothing, by the way, like what we're seeing in Israel, where the consistency of presence is truly astonishing and inspiring. In fact, it makes me wonder what we could have accomplished here had we mustered the political will to keep showing up week after week, not only those few times. and not for nothing. It's now clear that the funders and the designers of the judicial overhaul in Israel took their inspiration from the three Supreme Court seats that were appointed in the United States in those years between 2017 and 2020. Yes, there is a direct line from our failure to stop that process here, and Israel's attempt to do the same there. But three years after that broad and diverse Women's March. Three years after those initial protests, when George Floyd was murdered, an army of resistance arose across the country. And this time, we did show up week after week in a way that would have been unimaginable years before, had we not first developed the muscles. So I see these protests in the streets right now not as the end, but as a beginning, a sign that the nation is choosing not complacency and acceptance and acquiescence, but active resistance, prophetic resistance. And I see that the spirit is coming alive today while not yet addressing the 55-year occupation, the unresolved moral crisis of the nation. It will be the mechanism for the ultimate transformation of Israeli society. It will awaken the nation to the need for a just and equitable future for all of its inhabitants. Because the people of Israel are making a choice right now. While some people will join the fanatical messianic dreams of this regime and some people will flee the scene, hundreds of thousands of people will stay and they will fight. They refuse to be silent and they are using their grief to harness a collective power, a prophetic power. In other words, three things are simultaneously true. These protests are astonishing and magnificent and need to be celebrated. Israelis are awakening to the fragility of democracy. And at the same time, we must continue to push that we and they connect the dots, because the same people and movements that would destroy the judiciary are also hell-bent on annexing the West Bank, a truly untenable situation. And finally, we must continue to fight for a shared future. We cannot have democracy if democracy is not for everyone. I've shared with you here that after the murder of nine black worshipers in Bible study at Charleston's Mother Emanuel AME Church, my friend Reverend Otis Moss's father, Reverend Otis Moss Jr. spoke about prophetic grief. And here's what he said. Prophetic grief is more than crying and sighing and weeping and mourning. Prophetic grief is planting gardens of healing in the midst of raindrops of blood. Prophetic grief is declaring to the world that love is stronger than hate, that God's grace is greater than our grief, that God's power is greater than our pain. Prophetic grief, in other words, is not silent grief. It is grief that is planted in the garden of healing, where it can bear the fruits of redemption. That kind of grief can transform not only an individual mourner, but can transform an entire society. I wish that Aaron could have accessed that kind of grief after his own terrible loss, but he could not. Instead, his silence indicated a kind of acceptance, acquiescence, or justification, at least the way our tradition reads him. But today, a whole nation is rising up to say that there is another way. And the very least that we as American Jews can do is join in that chorus. There is another way. There must be. Shabbat Shalom.